there are days when you're just not feeling it. Days where you feel like you've lost your mojo. If you're looking to get it back, then you've tuned to the right station. Welcome to the Mojo Radio Show. I got my mojo working, but it just won't work on you. Everybody, and welcome to this week's edition of the Mojo Radio Show. Right out of the gates before we start, thank you to everybody who's been sending us notes of appreciation for the show. It gets our mojo working, and particularly those who've left a review on iTunes. It really, it warms our heart right down to our soap on a rope, folks. So thank you so much for doing that. For those people who are new to the show, and quite often we have people who are coming in for their very first listen to the Mojo Radio Show, the show is all about finding people that we find interesting who've got their mojo working in some aspect of their world. It could be at work, could be at play, could be for the community, it could be in wellness, health, but no matter what it is, if they've got something to share and we can take it, hear their opinion, hear their tips and tools and share it with you guys to help you get your mojo working, we're all over it. And when I say we, it's me. And the guy uh, driving the panel here, the guy in the studio with a brand new studio. Does it sound different, folks? It should do because Robbo has hand-built a brand new Stu Stu studio. I have indeed. And I'm loving every minute of it. Mate, nice job. Thank you. Yeah, I love it. It's um, It feels a bit more like home. If you could, Well, you know what was here before. <laughs> 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 Organised chaos. So I've organised my life a little now. Yeah, it's much better. Back on the tools, mate. Back on the tools. I don't know what's next now. That's the problem. I was um, standing in the garage on the weekend looking around going, what do I do next? So might uh, might have a chat to the missus and see if she's got anything. I know she wants something in the laundry, so I'm guessing I'm going to be making cabinets next. Mm, that took a nasty turn. <laughs> it did. Indeed. I should have kept my mouth shut. The Mojo Radio Show. Now... We have been following the journey of smoothies and wellness and getting our mojo working back mm. through food. And Robbo, you've been having a smoothie every morning, haven't I've you? I've been a smoothie addict for nearly a year now, yeah. And I found an interesting story across the weekend on Mind Body Green, and I'll put this link in the show notes for anybody who's interested. But the heading of the story was why you should choose frozen over fresh fruit. And I heard this story many years ago when I was listening to another podcast. I've been following the journey and it has, I think, changed my thinking about frozen. And I do put a lot more frozen fruit and or veggies into my smoothies and salads and so on. And this story talked about, well, why why is it that the frozen stuff is as good, if not better, than getting fresh? And just one point that Robbo and I were talking about, which I thought was a beauty, was that the second point on the story said that flash freezing preserves ripeness. And it's because the fruit is picked at the farm and flash frozen on the spot, it's preserved at the peak of its ripeness when it has the most nutrients. Now, that's quite contrary to sometimes when you're going into a store, particularly a supermarket, where that stuff could have been picked, what, Robbo, weeks, months tomatoes, ahead? Tomatoes, I understand, are picked like two or three weeks ahead of their, yeah. them actually being ripe. Yeah, yeah. and that would probably explain some of the hard, rock-hard-like oh, cricket ball avocados yeah. that I've bought of recent times. Yeah. So scientists from the University of Chester confirmed this idea with a study that measured nutrient levels in various produce, like fruit produce, that had been sitting in a fridge for three days compared to frozen equivalents. They found that there are more beneficial nutrients overall in the frozen stuff than there is, and that, that, that goes from everything from broccoli to blueberries. In two out of three cases, frozen fruit and veggies packed higher levels of antioxidants, polyphenols, anthocyanins, lutein, and beta-carotene. 
And in one report, the vitamin C content in fresh broccoli plummeted by more than 50%, a half in just a week. Whereas when they tested the frozen stuff, it was just 10% over an entire year when it was mm. frozen. Mm. So my outcome from this story, Robbo, is that I think it's worthwhile going to your store. The frozen stuff certainly is so much cheaper than buying the equivalent yeah, fresh. totally. Um, and in most cases, it's better for you and you've got it at hand. So there's no excuse not to have a smoothie or have it in your Absolutely. meal in the morning or have it into your dessert at nighttime and cook with yep. the real thing. So, um, yeah, there I, you go. I would add to that too. There's also nothing like growing your own. And that's something else we were talking about before we started recording today was, you know, growing your own stuff in the backyard and knowing that, okay, well, it's wintertime. So, you know, tomato and cucumber and that sort of stuff are out. But beans, you know, all kale, all that stuff that sort of grows much better in the wintertime, well, that's around. Um, and if you can't do that, I mean, I, I've got to be honest, in the last year, I have discovered three or four places around within a couple of kilometres of my house that I can drive to. Like there's one guy at Dural, which is just down the road from me, who basically has a farm gate stall. Yeah. Like, you know, just a little lean-to, bit of a tin roof. But you go past there and everything that's in season that he's growing, he has out the front and it's so ripe and so ready to go. I've got a honey man down the road who, who we get a honey off. It, it doesn't take much to sort of to find the fresh stuff. And then if you can't, then replace it with the frozen stuff. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it comes down to a desire. I think it's not, it's understanding how this is affecting our mojo and then having a desire to go and find these things. I mean, any balcony or backyard or, I mean, I've got mates of mine who grow, you know, herbs and veggies on their on their sill inside and they live up in an apartment block. Yep. But they grow little bits and pieces inside their apartment. And like raspberries, we grow raspberries at home and mm. we've gone hard on them and we started with, I think they call them straws or sticks or something. There may be six sticks and now it's taken over a whole garden. Wow. Nice. But when they, when they ripen, yeah. we go down every three days and just harvest it hard and then freeze it. And we've still now, raspberry's been off now for a couple of months. We've still mm. got bags of them frozen because um, why wouldn't you? I mean, it's just, you can grow your own. You can find it locally. If you can't, I, I don't know that people are really trying and don't have the great desire to do it. But yeah. I thought that was a great story. That's great. And the other one that I wanted to bring up was apart from that was our guest today and we're going to get back with Anna Devane to talk about sleep. Oh, good old Anna. Gary's 20 cents worth. Robert, do you remember our good mate Graham Cowan who's on the show yes. episode uh, 71? And he recently had a blog which I found interesting and the whole premise of his blog was titled the greatest killers of our resilience and performance. And you and I have been following this whole resilience grit thing now through the show for almost 100 shows, haven't we? Mm, absolutely, since day one pretty much, yep. Now, Graham's sort of curious guy and in May this year in 2016, he sought to discover what's affecting our mood and what's having an impact on our resilience and performance. And he went out, he did a big research campaign himself. He found... An interesting insight that when he spoke to people and the primary question is, what were the main challenges to your resilience, mood and performance? 60% of people, the highest response he got was not getting enough quality sleep each night. What we found and what's scary about this is, and I, I'm going to say anecdotally, I've kind of, I find this a lot when I'm working with executives that I reckon six out of 10 people, exactly the same as Graham's saying, look like crap, got no energy, their eyes are hanging out of their head, it's got to affect their clarity of thought. 
Um, and they're so busy with work and they're so overwhelmed, they're mm. just not getting proper sleep. And what's mm. scary about it is that there's a lot of research and data to back this up saying that if you are sleeping less than six hours per night, you increase your risk of obesity, diabetes, high blood pressure. And this is what the scariest thing is. You even increase the likelihood of premature death by 12%. Now, I don't know how they measure that. Wow. But that's one in 10 increase mm. in your chances of checking out early. Uh, uh. So I was thinking, Robbo, we should ring up the lovely Anna Devena, the sleep muse, and get her back on the show. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, that would be very useful. I would certainly have a few questions for her based on what you've just been talking about. Well, it's such an important topic and we have had a lot of mail and I see it myself when I'm out and about. I mean, I just think people are really suffering with this thing. And the other thing that I know Anna is working on, which I'd love to chat to her about, is um, is sleep with kids yeah. and the impact from a young age and setting a tone because you know that we are very passionate about our kids and how they are growing up with resilience and mood and grit yep. and determination performance. So uh, let's get her back on the show. I, yep. I reckon that'd be a great uh, a great session. I should send her some photos from the tour. I've got some great photos, photos of kids asleep on buses, catching flies and God knows what else. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to say. People have got some great photos of me sidelined asleep during the match. Oh, don't so, worry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> There's plenty of those too. Getting your mojo working. This is the Mojo Radio Show. Now, we know that the Olympics are only days away. In fact, mm-hmm. they start in three or four days. Yeah. Over there in Rio. And what's super cool, and I'm we are quite privileged to have this guy on the show, we have somebody who's lining up, has got the expectation of bringing home gold, and is going to be carrying a lot of Australians on his shoulders, yeah. on the bike, on the track. Yeah. Matthew Formston is a legally blind Australian paracyclist, and he'll be going to Rio. He's already got a swag of gold and silver in the UCI Paracycling Track World Championships. And he's heading over to Rio and he has got a real red hot chance of bringing home gold for Australia in the Olympic Games, the Paralympic Games in Rio. And Matt, we're delighted to have you here, mate. Welcome to the Mojo Radio Show. Thanks for having me. Mate, I, uh, I haven't seen you for a couple of months now. The last time I saw you was on the Tour de Cure where you rode a couple of days with us. The reason I wanted to get you on the show was that you were a special guest at one of our dinners in Armadale. And at that time when Mark Beretta from Channel 7 Sunrise was talking to you, he talked about the fact that you are an athlete who is legally blind. What does what does legally blind mean? Uh, so legally blind, so there's obviously a, a level of vision that you have to get, that has a degradation of vision before you are um, classified as legally blind. So you have to have 20%. So you've lost 80% of your vision to be legally blind. And my vision is I've got got no central vision, so I'm completely blind in my central vision, and I've got 5% of my peripheral vision. Wow. How would someone relate to that, Matt? Give us an idea of what would we see if we were Mm. looking through the same lens that you have been looking through since you were five years old, What's it look like for us? Yeah, so it's really hard for me to explain that. So I'll give you, I'll give you a couple, two scenarios. So the way that they they define vision is via is a, is, is a comparison. Um, so you've heard of probably twenty twenty vision, that mm. you and most viewers would have no idea what that means. Twenty twenty <laughs> is a comparison. So what what you both see if you've both got full vision, what you both see if you stand twenty meters away from a stop sign. What you see of that stop sign is the same. You see the same color, the same shading. If there's any chips in the paint, you see all the same detail. My vision is 
uh, out of my peripheral vision, so obviously I've got no central vision, but what I can see out of my peripheral vision is classified at 6 over 120. So if I stand 6 metres away from the stop sign and you guys stand 120 metres away from the stop sign, we all see the same thing. Wow. Whoa. <laughs> wow. Okay, but I've got to go one step further than that. Yeah. So you guys are saying, whoa, wow, okay. But this is what I've been living with my whole life, right? So if you are interviewing a seagull now, Apparently, a seagull, if they could read, could read newspaper headlines from a kilometre and a half away. So they'd both be saying to you guys, whoa, how do you walk down the street? Yeah. You were diagnosed with this sight impairment when you were five years old. Yeah. And at that time, the doctors basically said to you that your chances of having a normal life were kind of minimal or, and or if not zero. That's true, isn't it? Like you, from day... From the earliest ages, you have really had to work hard with people's perceptions of your vision. Yeah, 100%. Originally, though, it wasn't me. It was my parents. So the doctors didn't tell me that I had no chance. They told my parents yeah. that. And my yeah. parents put that on the, on the head and said, well, no, that's not going to happen. And they never, let, they never let me get hold of that information. So they protected me from that information um, until I was an adult, I suppose, until I was sort of a teenager. And then it was pretty clear that, I, that that was the perception of most people. Um, so what my parents were told was that I would never be able to pretty much get an education. I'd have to go to a, a school for um, kids with visual impairment, hearing impairment or learning disabilities. Um, and my parents went to those schools and they, um, and no disrespect to people that have been to those schools, but they sort of looked at most of the students and they were walking around with shallow gates and their heads down and um, and bad posture and they, their social skills were just were not the same as kids that went to mainstream schooling. So they made the, the, the sort of the hard decision that, well, Matt's going to go through mainstream schooling, which kids did in the 80s, most kids with disabilities didn't do that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, they, they always had that sort of attitude that we'll, we'll, just, we'll just give everything a crack and if it works, it works, and if it doesn't, then we'll, then we'll, work, then we'll, we'll deal with that at the time. But mm. most of the things that I've done in my life, I've just been successful at, so we, did, we, didn't, we never had to worry about plan B because plan A works. It's, it's remarkable the impact that your parents and the parents' view they took on that has had on your life, Matt. You must, you must reflect back and be awfully proud of your parents with the way they have taken that information on board and then raised you to be the man you are today. Oh, mate, one hundred percent. I, I credit them to, um, to yeah, to, to most of the success that I have in sport and, and in business. My dad was a very successful business businessman himself, and I learned a lot of business skills from him. Um, but attitude-wise as well, they always both just said to me that I would sort of, even me and my sister would say and my brother would say, oh, you can't do this because so-and-so did this. And their attitude was always, it doesn't matter what so-and-so do, it doesn't matter what the current world champion of any sport does, that's just the, that's, their, that's, their, that's their limitations. Create your own limitations. So you can, whatever anyone else does, you can do better than that. That was, the, that was sort of, that was the environment that we grew up in. You've done some pretty incredible things with this, vision that you currently have yeah you've motorbiked across asia with your girlfriend on the back yeah you've played rugby and as a road cyclist you and a mate rode almost side by side or not in tandem but with each other from sydney to melbourne how how do you manage that with the limited vision you have how have you been able to do that um acute mental focus so when i was playing rugby I um, I was, and this is always a good joke. I, I, was, I played blindside breakaway. 
<laughs> nice. I thought you were going to say blindside <laughs> winger, but yeah, nice. Yeah. Yeah. So, no, so most of, so I'm obviously a, I'm an inspirational speaker, and that's, that's guaranteed to pretty much get most places. Everyone <laughs> in the place laughing their heads off. Um, but it's, true, it's a true story. So, the blindside, for anyone that doesn't know rugby union, Blindside, the blindside breakaway or blindside flanker, their job really is to just look at the, to shut down the, the ball on the blindside. And you've only got potentially a winger and a halfback mm-hmm. or a winger and an outside centre. So you haven't got a lot of stuff going on there from the, from the, from the scrum. So I just worked out that if I put the fear of God into the halfback and I just, because he doesn't move, right? He's stuck at the back of the scrum. So I worked out ways of sort of seeing the blur of the ball moving or I'd worked out ways of seeing if someone was moving, um, the ball was coming out. And I would just make it my job to make him so scared that he didn't want to pick the ball up. So then he would give his backs unclean ball. And that, and I just knew my job really well. So anything I've done in life, I just get really focused on what my job is. I don't get distracted around what everything else that's going on around me. I just do my job really well. And that's that's seen me be very successful in, in lots of avenues. So, I mean, I played rugby to a representative level. So 100 kids turn up to, to try out for a rep team. And the kid with 5% vision gets a spot. How does that work? Mm. And, and it's just the other kids haven't got their heads turned on. I'm going to throw this at you. I, I had a slight experience of this a couple of weeks ago, and, it, and, I, and I'm in no way saying this is anywhere near what you deal with, but it's, it's put these kids in a similar situation. We had the state championships. So it was an Eastwood reps team from kids from this area. And there was yep. a problem with the lights, and I won't go into it, but there was, there was no lighting for our last game. And it was it was bordering on pitch black. Like we, could, we couldn't see the middle of the pitch from the sideline. But we yep. had in the, in under 11s, there's 12 kids on each side. So we had 24 kids on the pitch who came off the pitch afterwards and basically said, I now know what it's like to play footy with no sight. They were, they were talking about listening for the ball. They were talking about yep. seeing which way people ran, which, which way other people ran who were closer to the ball to have an idea of where the ball might be and all that sort of stuff. And I, I, can't, Im- yep. I can't imagine what it must be like for someone in an even worse situation than that with 5% of their sight. I mean, it must be just, it almost must be instinct. But what you're saying is perfect. That's exactly what I teach people. They've learned that in 40 minutes of play mm. or 60 minutes or however long they're on the field. I've been doing this stuff my whole life. So yeah. for me, it's just about finding ways, different ways of doing things or finding my way of doing things. Mm. So I don't, I don't follow the normal playbook. I, never, I don't get to follow the normal playbook. And for me, that's, an, that's a great opportunity because it, uh, unfortunately in life, a lot of the times the playbook that we use is flawed or it's, 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 it's based off principles that are, that are old or that don't currently work in this society. So mm. um, I create my own playbook and by doing that, I create very efficient processes um, that enable me to be good at what I do and, and I'm very time poor. So by doing stuff my way, I usually find a quick way to do things and, uh, and I get them done and obviously efficient on a rugby field as well. But yeah, look, if the, guy, if the guy's running across the other, if he's, if he's running away from the ruck and mm. I hear him moving and then I, by, by seeing there's a blur, I follow that blur, he's not running off over there to get an ice cream. No, that's he's right. got the ball or he's chasing, <laughs> exactly. someone else, yeah. he's chasing someone else that's got the ball. Yeah. So I just follow the breadcrumbs until I get there. Um, and one of, the, one of the main things that I was, I was, very good at, I was very good at disrupting the play. Um, obviously, I wasn't that good in the backs, so I just stayed out of the way of the backs. But um, whenever I, if I went into a ruck, I, I would, was my parents and everyone watching couldn't believe how often I would come out of the ball with the ruck. Because once I get there, I just sort of get my hands in and I had a sense of feel, whereas most of the guys are trying to get their eyes in to see inside the ruck, yeah. which is obviously not the best way to do it. Whereas I'm feeling the energy and feeling where the pressure is between the players and but basically working out where the ball is, and then I'd come out with the ball. So Matt, I just want to 
camp on this for a second. You are about to head to Rio to compete for Australia in the Paralympics. You hold world records. You've been world champion. You've been at the top of your game. A week or two ago on the show, we interviewed Drew Ginn, who you know very well, three-time Australian Olympic gold medalist in rowing. You were interviewed with him at Armadale on the stage with Jens Vogt and Barretts. When I asked Drew about being an Olympian and bringing himself to the moment, he said something which I thought was very profound because people say, you know, be present, be in the moment. And I said, how did you do that before a race? And he said, I put my hand in the water because when you feel the water, you can't help but be in the moment because you're using your senses. And you talk about multi-sensory process you go through. Tell me about, I mean, I love where you're going with this rugby and I love the fact that you've got such laser beam focus. Tell me the process you go through using your senses to absolutely drill yourself into the moment in anything you do because you're a very focused guy. How do you use those senses? Give me a step-by-step that somebody could hear this go away and replicate. So any sport I play, and I'm actually writing a book at the moment, so this is giving me, it's, it's been a really good experience because I'm, I'm not writing the book myself. I've got a guy writing it for me, but he's interviewing me a lot. So through that process, I'm learning more stuff about myself that I didn't even know. Um, so one of the things we picked up is um, every sport I've played, it's been almost like um, my gladiator. Like I pick up my shield and my sword and that's it. Once that happens, the, the glaze goes on and, and it's game time. And I'm 100% focused. Right? My old life is – I don't meet Matt Thornston as a, as a civilian doesn't exist anymore and, the, and the, I suppose <laughs> the predator or, the, or, or, or the, yeah, the athlete turns on. So when I was playing rugby, it's putting my mouth guard in. When I'm surfing, it's putting my leg rope on. Um, and when I'm, when I'm racing in the velodrome, it's putting my visor on. So once my visor goes on, I just shut the rest of the world out and nothing else matters except performance. So there's it's, the tangible thing. Obviously, Drew's got the pretty hand in the water. Um, but I also go through a lot of... So visualisation is obviously a very underused resource. Yeah. I believe, um, for most people. Um, and vi- the word visualization is actually very distracting from the most powerful way to use that technique because um, I'm a very visual person. Actually, I've got a very visual memory, but I create my own visions in my head. So I see, so I see a little bit of something and then I add all the detail in. So, when I, so I, remember, I remember everything by, by visions, but then visions that I've created to myself. Um, but when I'm, when, I'm, when I'm talking about visualization, so visualizing for me winning a race and being on the podium or um, – or some or a business goal or something that I've got that I want to achieve. It's about visualizing as in feeling tangible. So if you if you wanted to buy if you want, if your goal was to buy, let's say buy a house, you visualize that house. You visualize the, you go and check out that house. You visualize the smell of the you, you smell the trees that are there and um, the sound of maybe the, the pebbles on the footpath. And then you um, imagine uh, the tactile sense of the, the agent handing you the keys when you eventually buy the house and um, the, the sun, sun aspect in one of the rooms and the feeling of the sun coming through the window. And if you just dial into all those different senses and the noise of birds that you might be able to hear in that area, the, the, it becomes more and more sharp. So the, the, the goal, if it's just an aspirational goal, um, it'll only have like a one. You'll, if you try and visualise it, it'll be pretty blurry and you might imagine one aspect of that goal. But as you visualise things and you, and you add more and more detail and layer, 
um, different sensory aspects into that to that goal and that vision, it is just so powerful and it can't ha- can't help but turn up in your life. I think it's gold. Gold. Before he even got to Rio, yet he struck gold. That's right. I actually, I'm actually interested in in something a bit of a twist on something you just said. I'm wondering. And I don't want to call it a disability because I, I don't. It sounds to me like your site is not a disability, but I'm not sure what else to call it. But I'm interested to know if you didn't have a, a lack of a, a loss of sight, do you think you'd still be as inspired to do as much as you do and when what you do, or do you think that's just? I get asked this question all the time. Do you? No, yeah, I get okay. Asked this question all the time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I get. When I'm speaking and when I'm coaching clients, they, I, after I've spent a bit of time with them, this, this question inevitably comes up. Um, and one of the other questions that comes up is, would you choose to have your sight mm. would you, or would you choose to have your disability? To me, it sounds like you're, you're sort of happy in your, your zone. It's giving me perspective. Mm. And it's the same as the eagle. Yeah. Being able to see better than you guys, yeah. I, it's given me a perspective to go uh, to fight. Mm. And when I was younger, like, I, and I'll, I'll, I'm happy to admit it now, when I was younger, I was just trying to prove that I didn't have a disability. So I'd go out surfing 12 waves and all the sighted guys are sitting on the beach. Um, and I was basically tr- taking my life into my hands. Um, but I was just trying to prove to everyone I didn't have a disability. And then by the time I was able to just go, yeah, you know what, I've got a disability and let's get on with it. I'd already done all those things and I had all this life experience. Um, and like for me, growing up on the northern beaches of Sydney, um, you don't have to fight a lot of the time. Most most families that live there have got a bit of money, and um, nothing, no disrespect to any of my mates, but they haven't done a lot of things in their lives. I've travelled the world. I've worn a green and gold jersey all over the world. I've been paid to ride a bike. Um, I've just had an amazing life, and my eyesight's given me that. I've got a question for you, Matt. Are you spiritual? And if so, how do you spiritually prepare yourself for a race? Um, yeah, I'm very spiritual. Um, I tap into energy. So I just, this is going to t- send some viewers way off. I um, think we're going into the twilight zone here, but this is this is where I this is where I go. Um, sweet. So so I use uh, so I use energy. So I believe that obviously there's more than just the senses that we know. There's more stuff going on than that. So we only know what we know, right? And that's a, and what we know is only a third of the pie, and there's still two thirds of the pie for us to find to work out as humans. And we, we just don't know what we don't know what we don't know. Um, but I do know that there's I, I tap into energy, and it helps me. So when I used to ride a single bike, um, I this is a tangible example that I can give people. Um, I was riding, I used to ride just to follow the line. So I can only see the line for sort of two metres away. It's just a blurry white white line. And that's how I rode to Melbourne, from Sydney to Melbourne, just basically following the line a metre in front of me. Um, but then obviously, as, as you said, the 11-year-old kids have played rugby in the dark for half an hour and they, they are good at it. I've been doing this for a long time. So you get pretty good at following the line. You can sort of hold pretty high speeds. But uh, because of I do that, I can't see anything that's coming up in front of me. So I rely on people behind me to call out if there's obstacles or whatever, and then I break and get slower so that I can make quicker analysis of what's in front of me. So there was a, there's a couple of times when I was riding along on my single bike, and all of a sudden I'd just be riding in the middle of the lane. And there's no explanation for it. I was just tap, I was just focusing on what I'm doing, and then someone would step out of a car. So door, car, door opens. And if I was holding the normal line that I held and just rode along the white line, I would have gone straight into the car door and I would have taken the person out. And this happened to me at least three times. And every time, I literally, within 10 metres of that happening, I swung out into the middle of the road and then swung back again. And it was sort of, 
after I went past it, I realized what had happened. And my people that were writing me said, what happened? How did you see that? And I didn't see it. I just sort of felt it. Like my subconscious knew what was going on and moved me out of the way. So, yeah, so there's people that are just going way up into the twilight zone right now. But um, so when I race, I tap into that type that type of energy. So it's the feeling of what's going on in, in the in the in the environment. If it, if it's if it's positive, it's, if it's negative, um, and it's a mindset as well. So I don't allow if so when I broke the world record in Mexico, um, the for the four kilometer pursuit, we trained to just, so the, the the world record at the time was four minutes and seventeen seconds. We we trained me and my pilot at the time. Mick trained to do a 416 because we figured if we could do that, that would get us into the final. We weren't trying to break the world record. We were just trying to get ourselves into the uh, into the final to become world champions. So we figured if we do if we go a second faster than the world the world record, we will uh, we'll put ourselves in that final. And then once we get there, we know we both got a plenty of numberliness and we're, we're a pretty good chance of winning. Um, so it was at altitude and tandems had never raced at altitude before, so that was a variable. Um, so in the first heat. So we're trying to do this four minutes and 16 seconds. In the first heat, the Spanish went out and did a 4.12. So mentally or spiritually, you can call it whatever you like, um, that dejects most people and they say, oh, that's it, it's game over. They've been training to do a 4.20 or whatever is in their mind. So their brain decides what they're going to do. And this is why world records stay at certain things for so long because people get stuck in their, in their head around what is achievable and what's not achievable. Whereas if you have in your heart what you so which is obviously more spiritual, what in your heart around what you what you want to do. And so for me, winning was is in my heart. So to win, I needed to go faster than them because if someone else might go faster, then you don't, then you don't go into the final. So I looked at Mick and he looked at me and we said, let's just do a four eleven. So we went through the four eleven, and it's and the body, human body, will do pretty much whatever you tell it to as long as you. Um, give it a certain amount of experience. So you see your body needs to go through a certain level of pain and you keep topping that pain level up till your body can tolerate a certain level. It's not just going to go out in the way to do a, a world record on the velodrome the first time you do it. It's not, it's not, it's not what I'm saying, but um, your brain will allow you to, um, to your, your, your body will allow you to do many things and push your body um, if your heart is willing. So yeah, that's probably a long-winded explanation and I'm probably steering away from the topic a little bit. Um, without going too much into the twilight zone, but yes, I'm very, very tapped into the spiritual side of my uh, my, my being. No, I I really like it, Matt, and I I admire your focus, and I admire your self belief and your deep self belief you have in yourself, and obviously your pilot. I'm curious to know your impressions of the difference between a deep self-belief in, one, in oneself and arrogance. So in performance, so we're talking about going to Olympic Games, the world champs, yep. uh, a big presentation for work, uh, trying to get the PNC to agree to, you know, a change at the school, whatever it may be, any element of life. Yeah. How do you see the difference between a deep self-belief we're talking about here and arrogance are they two separate things? They're definitely very different. Very different things. Yes, very different things. My belief is that arrogance comes from a very uneducated place, uh, and it comes a lot of the times from an insecure place. Um, whereas deep self confidence comes from a an educated place where you have the information, you you believe in something because you've done the research and you understand 
what the levels are. Um, so if it's going into the business meeting or whatever, you've done your preparation, you know what the competitors are doing, you know what the price margins are you need to hit, um, you know what services there are in the market. Um, you're confident because you know that you're not going to hit, the customer's not going to come up with a variable that, you did, that you're not prepared for. Whereas arrogance is you're going in there unprepared, thinking, yeah, I'm just going to smash this. And then you get then you get blindsided by by someone asking a question that you that you weren't aware of. So that I mean that's a good that's a good example of in a business environment. Um, and, and then it comes to, you can do that in sport as well. If you if you know what your competitors are doing, if you research technology, um, if you know what people have done before, if you know what people have done in what environments, um, if you do all that research and you still believe that you can um, achieve better results or the same results than those people before you, then that's a very safe place to have self confidence. And not arrogant. I think the stuff that you bring to the table, Matt, is absolute gold. One thing that I've heard you talk about, which I'm curious about, is you've said in an interview before that you have a fear of happiness. Can you talk me through that? What does that mean? I don't remember saying that. Can you give me some context around that? Well, no, you said it in an interview on uh, Zestology with the guy who does Zestology, that POM guy. Um, Okay. About I it was four or five episodes of his ago, and you, you're on there for about an hour or so. And you, in your in, in response to a, a question he had, you said that you you had a firm belief in yourself. You don't fear very much, but you had a fear of happiness. And I just wrote it down and thought, that's really oh, quite okay. curious about yeah. that. So, so yeah, so well, I have a fear of not of unhappiness. <laughs> You're making it up, Gary. <laughs> so I don't have I don't have I don't have physical fears. So if I'm out surfing big waves, um, I don't really I'm, I'm so zoned into what I'm doing that I don't really think about the consequences because if I do that, I'm going to allow doubt to come into my mind. Yeah. But if I'm taking on someone who's 20 kilos heavier than me in a rugby field, and I start thinking about what the that I could get damaged, then I, I'm starting to visualise negatives. Yeah. So I don't in in sport I don't actually allow those things to come into my mind. Mm. Um, whereas a, one, a fear that I have is, is happiness, is loss of happiness. So um, is like my, my I don't even want to I don't want to say this because I don't like putting the energy out there. But for example, someone in my family would get sick, mm. or um, like obviously being on tour to cure, and hearing the people's stories that have been through losing family members or like people losing their mothers when they were four years old and mm. um, just stuff that shouldn't, shouldn't happen. That's the sort of stuff that, that scares me and it scares me yeah. at an emotional level. Speaking of which, uh, just before we started recording, Matt, you said your family left to go overseas for a couple of months and you said to Robbo and I that with all the training you're doing, competing in Worlds, going to Rio, all those things put aside – nothing knocked you around more than uh, having to say goodbye to your family. That, that's interesting, isn't it, how the emotions can take someone who's so focused and disciplined yet cut inside and, uh, and leave us sad. Yeah, I'm, I'm a very emotional person when it comes to my – like I'm very hard in business and I'm very hard in sport. Um, but when it comes to my family, I'm pretty soft. So I'm, uh, I'm comfortable to talk about that because yeah, um, I, I, I think that every strong man should really have – a lot of softness for their family and for their loved ones. Um, and they're, they're a lot of the reason. Like when I'm racing in Rio, I'll be racing for my son and my daughter. Yeah. So, I mean, my, my business is around speaking and coaching people. 
my two most important customers in the whole world are my kids. What lessons would you like your kids to learn from what you've achieved even this far in your life? Um, I, don't really, I don't really want them to, to copy anything that I've done. Hmm. I think everyone should create their own path. Um, so I hope that they can learn that um, I didn't follow the playbook hmm. um, and uh, that they should create their own playbook but do it ethically. So don't create your own playbook and um, do that to je- and jeopardise other people or hurt other people. But if you can, if you can do stuff is good for you and creates the perfect world for you and doesn't impact on other people or even better, it creates a positive impact on other human beings, then that, that's the sort of life that I would want them to have. Matt, I've heard you say you don't model others, you model yourself, which kind of is a, a way of framing what you've just said to Robbo, which I think is really, really powerful. Tell me the steps that someone would go through. So somebody listening to the show goes, as we are both, Robbo and I both look at you going, mate, it's extraordinary what you've done, what you're about to do in Rio, but I, I love the way you detail it and put it together so somebody can get it, access it, and then do it. In the same way, you don't model others, but you model yourself. What would I go through to replicate that state of mind? So there's a couple of, there's a couple of key points there. If you're starting something, then you have to model other people. So when, if, you're, if you're entry level at something and you're just starting out, then you probably do need to model other people in a certain way and say, how has someone done this before? But as soon as you start picking it up and you become intermediate or at advanced level at that skill, then you should look at what the other people have achieved and, and set yourself a target of higher than that, not that level. Because even if you even if you fail at your objective, which is higher than theirs, you'll probably end up at their level. Whereas if you set yourself a goal of their level, you're probably going to fall short, then you fall short. So that's my first key point, I think, is always aim higher than what other people have done before because what, what humans have done at this point is just the starting point. Um, so then the next point, obviously, beyond that is then you've, then, you've become, then you've become successful at that core element of whatever it is you're doing. So then you can take parts of that and say, okay, well, what was the, what was the, what was what I modelled originally, and how are other people doing it? What, what was, it, what do I believe are the key points or the differentiators that I used, which made me more successful? And then you take those elements and you and you strengthen those elements. And by doing that in your job as well, because I mean, just because I've got a disability, it gives me an excuse to do things differently. And other people might find that challenging because they might all of a sudden that might it might appear to be um, a bit of a rebel if they're in the office and they're doing things differently. But if you can articulate that what you're doing is not because you're trying to be a rebel, it's because it's more efficient or it's because it's going to create better outcomes because of your experience. So if you can explain that to your boss or to your customers and say, "Yeah, look, we're not doing I'm not doing this because I just want to be rebellious or because I don't want to do it your way." The reasons I'm doing this are for A, B, C, and D, and this is my this is my experience, and this is my evidence as to why I'm doing it in this way. And then, because of doing it that way, you're going to be more successful, and you're probably going to be a lot more efficient too. So you're not taking as much time to do those things. You're you're not a full time athlete, Matt, are you? You've actually got a corporate gig as well. Yeah, I, I don't I don't think anyone should model my life because it's probably not achievable. It's a, it's a definite burnout. Case, which I did last year. Um, so, so I, uh, yeah, at the moment I'm a full-time athlete and I will be until Rio. Um, right. But okay. I work as a, I work for Optus, 
um, as an account executive. Um, so that's full time. Um, I manage a small business around that as well, my coaching and, and speaking consultancy. Um, so that's just Matt Formston, I suppose, is the brand for that. It's just, just me. Um, and then I'm an athlete as well. And I, and I manage me as being an athlete. As tandem cycling is not something that – it's not like uh, Tour de France where there's people chucking millions of dollars at, at yeah, technology. Yeah. So yeah. so I've, I've had to manage all my sponsorships. Obviously, I've got a pretty big step up on most other athletes because I've been working in corporate sales and um, working with some global customers over the last 15 years. So I've got a lot of experience in managing big relationships. Um, but uh, when, I, when I started looking at the technology side of things, it was just antiquated. The guys were all riding at world championships that all steel bikes. And so when I went to the people that know at Cycling Australia and the people that I thought had the information, this is a great way of modelling yourself, not other people. Um, they all said, oh, you can't make a carbon tandem. I said, that's, that's ludicrous. What do you mean? Like, it's, it's the strongest material in the world. And they said, oh, no, the, the Poms tried to do it in, 2000, in 2012 in London for the London Games. And Pinarello, which is a very renowned um, bike builder, Pinarello were making these frames for them and they couldn't do it. They kept snapping, they kept cracking frames and, and, and breaking frames. Um, and it may have been, that's, that's the word on the street, it may have been a different manufacturer, but that's what I've heard. Um, so I said, okay, that's fine, but Pinarello don't make tandems. So we're talking about a tandem here and there's completely different stress levels on, on a tandem bike. The amount of power going through a tandem bike on an elite pairing is just off the charts. Um, so you've, got, you've basically got two elite athletes who would put out the same amount on it that these bike manufacturers build a single bike to tolerate those, those levels of tolerance. And then they use the same tolerances for, for two people and it's a longer bike so there's more leverage across the, all those pieces of tubing. Um, anyway, so I, I basically did some research and, and went to the two best bike builders in the world that are making tandems. But they weren't making track tandems, they are making road bikes. And I worked with them myself, so no one else really got involved. Um, so this is the blind guy. I designed the whole bike to make it more aerodynamic and put extra tubes in that had never been done before and got this designed this whole bike um, that we've, met, we've we had the first run of it in 2000, so last year at World Championships. Um, now Nick and I have got the, the next generation, which is um, which is significantly faster um, than the, the bike that I use, the steel bike that I use for World Championships where I broke the world record. So um, I've been doing those sorts of projects on the side as well, as having a full-time job and having two little kids and having a wife and having a just having way too many projects running. But my time management skills are very, very good to, to allow me not to get too stressed and I just focus on one job at a time and don't let anything else distract me while I'm doing that job. Um, but, yeah, to give you an idea of my time, I get up at 4.30 in the morning, jump on the bike between two and four hours, jump in a cab, soon as I get home, basically have a shower, have a protein shake, jump in the cab and go and see a customer somewhere or, or go into an office somewhere, um, get home at night, sort of six or seven o'clock at night, hopefully in time to put my son in the bath or give him a bit of dinner and then put him in the bath and put him to bed. Um, and read him a story, which is obviously a different story every night. And now he's getting old enough that he's telling me, that, no, Daddy, that's not the story. So I can't say the words. <laughs> um, and then put him to bed and hopefully spend a bit of time with my wife and, and then get, and get some sleep. And that's when I'm actually in Australia or in New South Wales. So it's it's not a life that is sustainable, but it's been something that's been achievable for a few years to get the outcomes we're looking for. That's, that's kind of where I was going, Matt. I'm curious with the corporate world, up until recently, you were 
training as well as having the corporate world. Family, you know how important they are to you. Yeah. The work on the bike, having a, a, a partner at home in your, your, your personal life as well as a partner on the bike. Yeah. You must be very ritualized and you must be able to compartmentalize very well. Would they be two secrets or tools that you use in order to be able to get through your day to achieve all the things that you have dreamt of doing? 100%. I, and I think it's, that's the way I do it. So I would never say to anyone, 100%, you have to do it this way. Um, yeah. But I know that some of the people I've worked with and they've implemented compartmentalization, it's, it's given them a lot more efficiency because we get distracted, right? And when you're being distracted, you're not efficient. Um, so for me, it's just about being 100% focused on the task at hand and I'll block that into hours. So my calendar's locked out into certain hours for certain tasks and I do those, I do those tasks for those hours. And I don't think about anything else. And then when the next task gets its allocated block of time, I do that task. And obviously I get calls here and the, the phone's going all day, so I'll take certain calls. But sometimes if I'm blocked out, if I need to get something done, I'll just don't answer on the phone for a couple of hours. And then as soon as that time's out, because most of my like my corporate job and my, my consultancy is all about relationships, so I have to call people back and I pride myself on that. So um, I'll call people back straight away. And, and, and then also by doing that, I'm ticking that off. So I don't, have, I don't have this pile of calls after a day or two days to call back. Um, and people understand that if, if you say I'm busy and, and you're very outcome focused and people know that you generate results, they won't waste your time. Matt, you're heading to Rio in the next couple of weeks to compete for Australia at the Paralympic Games. What's going to happen over there, mate? What can we expect? I'm, I'll be in four events. The first day is my pet event, which is the four-kilometre pursuit. Um, and, yeah, I'm hoping for a gold on the first day. That's, that's the goal. Um, there's going to be, obviously, a lot of guys from around the world that are going to be having that same goal. And it is the absolute top of sport, like the Olympics or the Paralympics is as high as sport gets. So mm. um, everyone, everyone will be in their A game on that day. But my absolute goal, and especially after having to see my son leave today um, and my wife and my, my daughter, the next two months spending time apart from them, it'll be uh, every single minute I'll be thinking about bringing home the gold for them. Good on you, mate. Absolutely. So anyone that's racing man, everybody's going to have to bring the absolute A game. <laughs> I'm not sure if it'll make it any easier for you, Matt, but we are going to put a little something in your kit bag. We're going to send you a Mojo Radio Show soap on a rope. <laughs> nice. And that's just a little something to have you think of the show to get your mojo working. Very, They're limited edition. I know, it's, I know it's a bit emotional to think about having a soap on the rope and you'll be thinking of Rubbo and I when you're getting no, ready good. for that. I'm <laughs> You I'm know just what saying I'm, I'm going to, I can't pull it out in Rio, in Italy or Rio. I have to. It's got to be one or the other. It can't be both because I'm not taking a, <laughs> a wet soap in the bag. You, you know what I was going. You know what I was going to say, Matt. I'm actually having visions, right? Paralympics first day, four kilometer pursuit. Matt wins first place. Yeah. I'm seeing you standing on the pedestal, holding on to the flowers that they give you, <laughs> bending down to put the medal, the gold medal on, and the guy goes. Yeah. There's no room. This guy's wearing soap on a rope. Where am I going to put gold. the medal? That oh, is you gold. Give yourself a gold for that one. <laughs> that is gold. That's beautiful. Just before you go, I yeah. you're heading over there to Rio. Uh, Nick is your pilot. So there are some fabulous videos online of Matt doing what he does on the track. So Matt sits on the back. He's got a pilot guy in the front. We've already talked about the tandem bike. They're whizzing around a velodrome 
we're, we're about to start the 4K pursuit in the Olympic Games. Talk me through the last 20 minutes of preparation. You've made the final. You and Nick are going to the start. Yeah. We've got one thing in mind, bring it home for your family. Tell me the yeah. ritual that you would go through in that last 20 minutes that puts you in the moment ready to deliver your absolute best in that moment. Relax. That's it. You've done the work. Everything's been done. You can't change anything by stressing or amping yourself up or distracting yourself. So it's just about relaxing and not letting anything come into your mind, not even the race. You go, you go through the motions. You just tick off each thing. So as I've got my number on my skin suit, I finish warming down. I've got a time. So it's all about the time once again. I've got my time works backwards from when I start. Start my warm-up, finish my warm-up, get off the bike, five minutes to sit down, look, look around the velodrome, take a bit of the energy in and just try and, and not, not allow any negativity to float in. Be confident but not overconfident, not cocky, um, and just relax. That's the most important thing. And I've used that a lot in business as well and um, in a lot of my aspects of my life. The more stressful something is, and the more angst that, that could be created, if you just focus on relaxing and knowing that you've done everything you can possibly do before you step up, that's the best state you can be in. More gold. More gold. I think Robbo, Matt, is sufficiently warmed up. I yeah, think we've had him on the exercise time. bike. Yeah. He is ready for the big question for the Mojo Radio Show. So my friend, uh, far away. If he's ready for the Paralympics, he's ready for this, surely. Matt? Sure. I've got to know. I know. I know you like. You just said that you're like you, you're sort of sitting in silence before the race. But I want to know if you're sitting on the warm up bike and you're getting yourself yeah. mentally prepared. I want to know yeah. what the go to track on your iPod is to get you in yeah. in in that mental place ready to go. On fifty fifty on music. Yeah. Sometimes there's no iPod. Right. Mm. Sometimes there is. Yep. On the occasions there is, what would be the go to track? Oh, it could be anything. Yeah, could be a favourite. Yeah, I think the last time I was, just, I think I had Alice in Wonderland, just a bit of bass and something quite rhythmical to go with the pedal. Just one last question, Matt. Um, I'm curious, when you're reading the story to your little boy in bed, how yeah. do you do that? Like, I'm, I'm actually curious to know. I've got a couple of options in my head as to what that might be, but I'd like to hear from you. What process do you go through for that? Um, so obviously I have to memorise most things in my life. So once I do something once, I don't have the option of going back and researching it. So I have to memorise it. So I did that in school. I've done that through my whole life. So my memory is quite good. So if I have a book, I pretty much memorise what's on every page of the book. And if I've heard my wife read it to my son, I can pretty much read the whole book to him word for word. But if it's a book that, she hasn't, that I haven't heard her read, then I uh, get him to point to the animals and I hear my wife chuckling in, in the background in another room if she's with my daughter because most of the time he'll say an animal's not the animal and she knows what page it is. And so then I'll create the story around that animal, but it's not the actual animal in the book. He just thinks it's something else. So we just create the story together and he, he tells me what's on the pages and I make up the story and, and it's great. So he, um, he doesn't ever get bored because it's always a different story. That's great. That's beautiful, mate. That's that fantastic. is so good. Absolutely. Well, mate. I enjoyed meeting you in Armadale. I enjoyed watching you on stage with Jens Bock, the Tour de France former legend, and Drew Ginn being interviewed with Barretts. It was such a treat having you for a few days on the road in the Tour de Cure. And I've got to say, mate, this interview really, from the minute you started, it's just been wall-to-wall gold. Mm. Hasn't it, Robbo? It's just been terrific. I'm inspired. That's awesome. 
yeah, it's been great. Mate, we're going to be uh, we're, we're going to be like um, Damien Oliver mm. sitting on the back of your bike, and don't uh, don't be too scared because Robbo's he's a he's a big bone character, so you're going to be carrying a bit of weight <laughs> with us on your back. But uh, okay. Can you wait until the road race for that maybe and just jump on the top of the hill? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah, there you go. We'll be, we'll be whipping you home like a, a good Melbourne Cup winner, mate. So uh, good luck in Rio. We wish you the best. We will be watching. We'll be sending good thoughts to you, buddy, and uh, we mm. hope to talk to you after you bring home gold for Australia. Yeah, best of luck, mate. Thanks for having me, guys. Really appreciate the it. The Mojo Radio Show. So. I reckon if you were never motivated to do anything physical or get any sort of physical activity up until now, if you've just listened to that interview and you're not motivated to go and do something, there's something wrong with you. On so many levels though, I mean, that Matt is, having met him and spent some time with him on the Tour de Cure and now talking to him on the show, he's got such laser beam focus. Yeah. But at the same time, he's able to, and it's such a good word, to compartmentalise because when we spoke to Matt, his family had just headed off overseas and he was actually quite emotional, like it was really something hit home to him. Mm. So it's not as if the laser beam focus or being single-minded in your approach to a task means that you lose your emotion or you lose your physical attraction to other people. But he compartmentalises when he's on, man, he's really on. When he's off, mm. then that's all good because he knows he can turn it back on. And that was a great show. And I think it's one of those shows, Robbo, you need to hear a couple of times yes. with a pen and paper to take out the actions and the learnings to drop into your journal because uh, he was dropping a lot of gold. There was gold. And hopefully there'll be gold on the track in a couple of weeks' time once the Paralympics kick off too. He didn't say this during the show, folks, but what he was very clear when he finished the show was that he actually wants to send a shout-out to the Mojo Radio Show from the top step of the podium, oh. and he asked for a soap on a rope, a rope. so yeah. he could uh, just hold it up to the hold it up to the audience as he got his gold, which I thought was you know very very nice of him. Absolutely, and I think there's probably one on his way. One his way. In fact, judging by what I saw of the um, the athletes' village before the Olympic Games started, uh, he might need that soap on the rope, mate. <laughs> <laughs> How true. In fact, I got a lovely email this morning from somebody who works at the Commonwealth Bank. Mm. Uh, Long-time listener, first-time writer who nice. said, mate, uh, what's one got to do to get a soap on a rope? I said, oh, you've just done I think it. you've just done it. You've yeah. just done it. That's all you need. That's all you need. doesn't nice. take much. Now, speaking of which, uh, the old grey dog sent a lovely review to us on iTunes. We want to send a soap on a rope to the old grey dog yeah. who said, just listened to the second Drew Ginn podcast. Wow. So much real and usable thinking to implement in my own life and family. The questions and probing and the responses you got from Drew were just incredible. Five-star review, heading halfway between inspired and embarrassed. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds like Old Grey Dog nailed the show in one. Halfway between inspired and embarrassed. Love it. Halfway between hell and amazing grace. That sounds like the Mojo (laughs) Radio Show. And a quick shout-out to... Kirsty 24 who wrote, I have been a listener for a while now. The guests are fantastic bunch and I always get something to take away from each show. A very worthwhile listen in my week. So thank you, Kirsty 24 Soap it. on a rope. Get in contact with us, guys. Yeah. Go to the website, shoot us an email and a soap on a rope, which are pretty cool. We must post a photo up on Facebook of our new soap on a ropes, which have arrived. Thank you to Oksana. So uh, there you go. The Mojo Radio Shows. Lessons in Rock. Robbo, have you heard of uh, DJ Shadow? 
No, I can't say I have. <laughs> Should I have? <laughs> yeah, no. No, I, had, I hadn't either, but I was reading a, an interesting story on this guy, which I loved. His real name is Josh Davis, and he's a producer. Mm. Uh, he's had he's got a very, very big underground, very successful big underground following, and mm. he hasn't done an album for quite a while. He's only done three albums in his time and he's been DJing and producing for quite a bit. And the last album he's done, which has just been released on recent times through Mass Appeal Records, was called The Mountain Will Fall. And this guy hasn't done a lot of work, but more of his work he's known for is um, his collaborations with people like Radiohead, Depeche Mode, Moss Def, Beastie Boys, some of our favourite bands. Yeah, Absolutely. And what I liked, it was just a comment he made about writing and creating. And they asked him, is he always doing it? And his response was, oh, no, I definitely need a start date. I need that kind of push, that kind of pressure on myself. Like it's okay, today's the day. I'm usually aware of the impending need to sit down and make a record for months and months ahead of time. And in this case, I was going to start in the summer and then as summer came around, I was like, ah, yeah, I'll, I'll get to it. But what he found was he actually had to set himself an actual date. And then once you have a date to start, you need to steer yourself for that date, he said, because to him, sitting down and making it is a certain combination. It's like a muscle memory. So what he does is he says, I know I have to do this. And he sets himself a particular date. And I think one of the challenges with us with the writing process is that we don't set ourselves these dates and we keep meaning to get there, but we never really just say, okay, it's going to be Friday morning, I'm getting up early, that's what I'm going to do this. In which case then you give your subconscious mind time to play with the content, think of the angles, start collecting ideas, but you actually have a start time to work towards. And it was one of the big stories that I took from our interview with John Karabi, where he said quite often when he's out and about, he's got nothing to say. But then when he knows mm. he has to write, he walks in the studio and he has everything to say. Yes. You know what I mean? Like, I quite yeah. like this idea of setting a date for it. And I say it's something I do quite often when I have to write copy or prepare for a show. I'll, I'll put it down for a couple of days' time, but I'll put it down for a particular time. Mm. And then I can forget about it because I'm not worried about always having, it's always on my list of things I want to get accomplished. So I thought uh, it was a good story from DJ Shadow. So as a player today, as our lesson of rock, mm. I thought we could play this track as a tribute to DJ Shadow and invite everybody who, who's listening to the Mojo Radio Show to set aside a day, a time, a specific time when you'll start a creative project. Nice one. We're out. I don't read the newspapers because they all have Ugly friends.
assignments. Radio Show is produced and recorded in the studios of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at the Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. For more about Gary, see garybertwhistle.com or to polish your next audio or video production, check out voodoosound.com.au and for the right voice, realtimecasting.com. Andrew Peters speaking. See you next time.